Luke chapter 2, beginning together in verse 8, we'll spend our time examining carefully verse 14, but let's read the run-up, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for preserving it for us, that we might on this Advent Sunday anticipate your future arrival and look back at your first arrival with a clear understanding of exactly what it is that you came to accomplish and therefore what will be finally accomplished when you return. Well, help us to understand, meet us where we are, and we thank you in Christ's name in advance. Amen. You may be seated. We come this morning to the third Sunday in our Advent series where we will emphasize this declaration of peace, peace on earth. Now, John Witherspoon helpfully writes, all the works and ways of God have something in them mysterious, above the comprehension of any finite understanding. As this is the case with his works of creation and providence, there is no reason to expect it should be otherwise in the astonishing method of the redemption of the world by Jesus Christ. All the works and ways of God have something in them mysterious. This is an incredibly helpful statement for us, isn't it? Think of the last time you spoke with an unbeliever about their need for salvation, God's work in the world, and how God has provided a way to be saved. Now, we sound like lunatics to them. And I don't mean that condescendingly. The scriptures tell us the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Surely then we should not be surprised at two things. First, the unregenerate can only come to faith in Christ by the Spirit giving clarity to the mind. Otherwise, it's all just a mystery. And secondly, the believer in Christ, the Christian, 
regularly deals in the world of mystery. I appreciate that C.S. Lewis in his The Chronicles of Narnia does not shy away from the word magic. Of course, magic has negative connotations, but it is the best apt word, the most apt word to describe what is happening in the world. These are not natural forces, they are supernatural forces at work. It is magic that God spoke humankind into existence, that he, in some unseen realm, speaks to us, right? Is it in our thoughts, or is it deeper in, in, our, in our guts, in our bowels, as the Hebrews would say? What is that? That still, small voice with which God speaks to us intimately and personally, Something like a conversation and yet never truly being able to pen the words or at least to pen them would to do them an injustice, right? What is that? It's magic. (laughs) We should not be surprised then that the unregenerate can only come to faith in Christ by the Spirit giving clarity to their minds or to recognize that we regularly deal with in the world of mystery. Our message is a strange one. And the Christmas season only amplifies this point. As we say to the world around us, look to the baby in the manger born to a Jewish girl 2,000 years ago. Look to him and live. Believe on him for salvation. Trust in him and have peace. What a bizarre thing to say. Yes, Paul was on to something when he wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, this tension is very clearly seen in the angelic announcement that upon the birth of this baby, peace has come to the earth. <laughs> Truly, all the works and ways of God have something in them mysterious. Our goal today will be to understand how it is that the baby born to Mary and Joseph has brought peace into a very troubled world. How that peace is only partially realized in what is called the age of grace, and how that peace meets the deepest need of every man, woman, and child. To do so, let us consider the three movements of the angelic announcement in Luke 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, among those with whom he is pleased. Let's consider the first phrase, if you're taking notes, glory to God, or specifically, glory to God in the highest. The angelic announcement begins with giving praise to God. This is a good and doctrinal foundation for everything that comes after. When the reformers were gathering together to establish a systematic way of teaching the very illiterate church 
in the 16th century and beyond, they realized they needed a, 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 a system to educate from the very lowest of foundational points. For the church had been robbed of education from the pastors for hundreds of years. Services were held in Latin, even though the, speak, the people didn't speak Latin. The pastors would read from the text in Latin, and they would say, the people would say, well, what did you just say? And the pastor would say, give money to the church, and your sins will be forgiven. In fact, you want to build a new building. Give some extra money, and the sins of your dead relatives will be forgiven. And with fear and lies, the church was dumbed down by the very men who were called to be her shepherds, her doctors, guides, stewards. And so the reformers recognized not only was the, the leadership of the church corrupted to its core, but that the people of God were illiterate beyond measure. What the people of God knew of God was almost worse than knowing nothing at all. What must be done, they said. And at the Westminster Assembly, they established and fortified and eventually crystallized what is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a series of questions meant to start at the very ground level and build an entire Christian theology into the mind of the church systematically. And question number one, they said, what is the first question we should ask and then have answered? What's the absolute lowest possible foundational understanding of Christianity upon which everything that comes after it is to be built? And the question that they settled on was this. What is the chief aim of man? Or in modern language, what is man's primary purpose? Why do we exist <laughs> in simple terms? What are we doing here? What is our objective in Christian thought exclusively? And the answer would come from the mouths of children and from the aged for hundreds of years now on. Man's chief aim is to what, friends? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so it should be no surprise to us then that as the baby is born and the shepherds are interrupted, they're shaken to their core, the angel says, don't be afraid. <laughs> I bring good news. And that good news, that pronouncement that the whole of the heavenly host join with that angel to say or to sing begins with glory to God in the highest. It is a good and doctrinal foundation for all that comes next. The preoccupation of the Christian is the glory of God. Now, the question human beings might ponder most often is summed up in just one word. Why? Right? 
right here in this circle, why did God do things the way he did them? Why did he create the world the way he created it? Why did he allow the serpent into the garden? Why did he make man first and not woman first? Right? Why, why, why? It's also the most common question asked by the skeptic. If God is all good and all powerful, why do bad things happen? Or more specifically, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, of course, the premise is flawed. There are no good people except for Christ himself. Nevertheless, the why question remains among the unconverted and the regenerated question. Why does God allow certain ailments to plague our bodies? Why does God allow crooked rulers to be elected or to assume office? Why does God choose to use the proclamation of the gospel through human mouthpieces to redeem his elect? Truly, the why questions are innumerable. But we might also ask, why did he make the mountains beautiful? Why does a wife's smile bring a husband such delight? Why did he make the sound of children's laughter sweet to the ear, music to be moving in our core, or give chickens personalities? <laughs> Why? The answer is simple, if not unsatisfying. He makes all things bright and beautiful to display his glory. To display his glory. Conversely, that which we rightly determine to be bad, he magically uses for good. Only God can do something so consistently and overarchingly as he governs the world he created with wisdom beyond our comprehension. He even allows and uses what is, what is inherently bad to accomplish his good purposes. And in doing so, he sort of mocks Satan. And so, with the arrival of the Christ child under suspicious circumstances, he was called a, a man born into immorality into his 30s. So, born under suspicious circumstances into a humble situation, the first words of the angelic announcement ring out for 2,000 years, glory to God in the highest, glory. The Christian is convinced not by sight, but by faith, that everything God does and allows is ultimately for our good. It is the great comfort of the all-encompassing language of the Apostle Paul in Romans. We know, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There are no qualifiers beyond those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There are no qualifiers to the all things 
And so if we are to ask a good why question, we ought to ask, why did God save me? As R.C. Sproul put it, this creature from the dirt who defied the living God. Let us remember then, Calvin puts it, the final cause why God reconciled us to himself through his only begotten son. It was that he might glorify his name by revealing the riches of his grace and of his boundless mercy. And so, if we're going to talk about peace, we've got to first talk about God bringing glory to himself. It is the foundation upon which everything else is built. The announcement of peace on earth begins by reminding the reader, we are dust, he is God, and his glory is on display in the salvation of sinners. Peace begins by fixing our gaze on God's glory. Secondly, the second phrase we come to, the second movement is that on the screen, peace on earth, or on earth, peace. From God's glory to the announcement of the arrival of peace on the earth. Now, this is either a foolish declaration or it's a circumstantial reality by human standard, or it's neither of the two. It's either a foolish declaration because the world was not and has not been at peace since that moment, right? So it seems to be words spoken into the air that seem to have no merit. Peace on earth, right? Or it's a circumstance by human definition that is experienced by mankind, peace, right? Peace, calmness, right? Or it's neither of those two things. Let's take each of those assertions and consider them individually. Is this a foolish declaration, peace on earth? It's like shouting into a crowd who is stirred up and afraid. Peace. Peace. What do you mean peace? Have you solved the problem? No, but I've said the word peace. Oh, the, the situation is still dire. The tsunami is still coming. The, the earthquake is still quaking. The Fires are still raging. The war is still coming. And you just say the word peace and expect that to mean something? Like Michael Scott in the office, I declare bankruptcy? Is it a foolish declaration? Peace on earth. Does the incarnation usher in peace on earth? Well, it would hardly seem so. Just after Jesus' birth and the visit from the Magi, King Herod has so many infant Israelites murdered that the wailing from the mothers can only be described as prophetic and legendary in the worst sense of the term. 
Jesus' ministry was marked by challenge and confrontation with Jewish leaders, which ultimately led to his arrest and crucifixion as the governing authorities gave way to a raging mob of Hebrews, crucify him, crucify him. Forty years later, after Jerusalem was under the control of rival factions rebelling against the empire, the Roman army besieged the city, Famine and cannibalism ensued, and ultimately the walls of Jerusalem were broken in two places, the rebel forces murdered, and the temple of God destroyed. For the next 2,000 years, mankind has seemingly perfected the art of conflict and mass casualty. Wars have ravaged God's good earth. Tyrants have risen to power, been assassinated, and replaced by another and most recently, genetically altered diseases decimate and intimidate the population of the world. Some peace. We must seek to understand what the angels meant then by peace on earth if we are to reconcile this contradiction. To do so, we must simply rightly see man's position under God's righteous judgment. We will never understand the pronouncement of the angel unless we see man in his true condition first. Since the fall of Adam, all human offspring inherit his fallen nature and condemned status. We collectively by our sins stand at enmity with God, for in Adam all men fell. Paul writes it this way, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, if we're insightful, we will notice that this reality is implied by the angelic announcement. Here come the words from the heavenly hosts of God. Peace on earth. What's implied? Not peace before this, right? The insightful will see clearly the angel says and knows the heavenly hosts declare into a world wrecked by a lack of peace, peace has come, right? Calvin says it again, if you do not place man and God in marked opposition, the contrast will not fully appear. So the answer to the question is no. This declaration of peace upon earth, upon the arrival of Christ, is not foolish. It's not speaking words into chaos. No, man is at war with God from birth, Ephesians 2, 3. We are by nature children of wrath, but with the incarnation, the only way by which man might be saved has entered the world. You were born into a Tasmanian devil-style hurricane with God.
And with the birth of Christ, we might say the next step in human redemption is unfolding. Unless we acknowledge that man is at war with God, this peace will never be personally realized. Second question, has peace come on earth according to human standards? Right? Is it a foolish declaration? Not when we understand man is at war with God. Well, is it peace on earth according to human standards? Nope. No, the, the, the Christian defines peace very differently than his unregenerate human counterpart. The world defines peace as human life devoid of conflict. Human life devoid of conflict. But the person with a developed Christian worldview knows that that definition is shallow and lacking. The Christian is to think of peace on two distinctively biblical levels. Peace with God on judgment day and peace in life irrespective of circumstance. Any discussion of peace absent these elements is underdeveloped, worldly, foolish, and betrays a spiritual immaturity unbecoming of the people of God. There is an interesting parallel between the arrival of the Christ and the pending rise of Antichrist. At Jesus' birth comes this announcement, peace on earth. And in the last days, we understand Antichrist will rise to power and influence, promising what? Peace. Peace where peace has never before been accomplished. Daniel's prophecy states that the Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many. And we understand this to simply mean this, peace in the Middle East. A firm covenant with Israel and with her enemies nationally. Antichrist will accomplish this peace by human standards. A life devoid of conflict. Zechariah states that this one will come, at least seemingly, out of the nation of Israel. At minimum, he will be given to Israel who rejected her true shepherd. God will give to her a false shepherd who ushers in a false peace, but it's not a peace that will last, even as it is a peace defined by human standards. It will be shown for what it really is, fool's gold. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the younger of two brothers, Edmund, is seduced to betray his siblings by the white witch of Narnia. She tempts him with his favorite treat, Turkish delight. He eats it, and he asks for more. He craved more, but was promised only to receive more once he brought his siblings to her. Well, the story reads that from that moment forward, Edmund could not think clearly about anything. He ignored rational common sense, warning signs. 
He could only think of one thing. He wanted more of the witch's food and would do anything to get it. But the satisfaction it offered was a trick. Mr. Beaver, upon seeing Edmund for the first time, remarked later, he had the look of one who had eaten her food. (laughs) The analogy is insightful. That which Satan promises as peace is a poisoned deception designed only for destruction. And so, Antichrist will poison the minds of those who are looking for peace by human standards, looking for it from some place other than the Christ child, they who long for peace as man defines it rather than by divine revelation. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Upon Jesus' birth, peace on earth. And upon the rise of Antichrist, he promises peace on earth. And yet we know how the story ends. That there is but one who will come and bring true and lasting peace. And of course, it is at the second advent of our Lord and Savior. And so the angelic announcement is neither a foolish declaration, nor is it a circumstantial reality experienced according to human standard. It is divine revelation of man's true standing. It is God's promise to rescue and to forgive. It is a peace that surpasses understanding, as Paul writes to the Philippians. It's a peace that overcomes temporal circumstance. And to that end, we come to the third and final movement of the angel's announcement. Goodwill to men. Right? Or as the ESV rightly renders it, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Goodwill toward men is much more poetic. It's easier to say and remember and, you know. But it's a good, it's, it's a good translation The translators of the ESV refer to some very specific linguistic movements in the original language, this verb and that piece and this ending and that ending, to reconcile this statement, goodwill to men. Not goodwill to men, but goodwill to man on whom God's face shines. But God's face only shines on those who have been redeemed. And so they render that statement, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You might say, the goodwill is extended to all, but experienced only by those who are in the delight of God's shining face. Peace has come, as Paul states, In Ephesians chapter 2, he is our peace. But the peace is only enjoyed by those with whom God is pleased. But with whom is God pleased? Well, I'm reminded of the psalmist. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Same question. With whom is God pleased? On whom does this peace shine? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. And we know that 
There is none who has these clean hands. Right? Your hands and my hands have perpetrated evil. They might not be bloody like King David's, but they are bloody in our murderous anger in the heart. These hands have written, these hands have gestured, these hands have acted, these hands have worked deceitfully, these hands have carried us and taken us to places we wish they had not. So who has clean hands? Well, none but Christ. And so who can ascend the hill of the Lord? None but Christ. Who has a pure heart? Not me, not you. Your heart and my heart is deceptively wicked and beyond understanding, Jeremiah chapter 17. Who can know it? Follow your heart. Yes, follow it right down the broad path of destruction that leads to eternal damnation. Our hearts are rotten to the core unless they are replaced by a new heart of flesh as promised in Ezekiel chapters 26 and again, I believe, in 36. So who has a pure heart, whose intentions and motives are always good, whose every waking moment was always and only to do the will of the Father, none but Christ. So on who does this peace shine? It shines on Christ and in Christ alone. And were that the end of the story, we would be most hopeless indeed. But he has promised that by forgiveness and repentance, by the confession of Jesus as Lord, we can put him on. We take on his identity. And he gives to us his hands and his heart. On whom does this peace shine? It's those who have put on Christ. And as we think of life in these terms, when we think of our station before Christ, when we consider the plight of humanity before the announcement of this arrival, when we think about the depravity of our hands and our minds and our mouths and the intentions and desires of our hearts for so many moments of our wicked human existence, and then we think on the the goodness of the gift that he'll give to you clean hands in place of your filthy ones and a pure heart in place of your rotten one. Everything else is put in perspective, isn't it? Nothing else matters. Ah, the words of Isaiah are good and true. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Yeah. Well, our time has ended. And so I'd ask that we consider three brief points of application. 
Number one, I would ask that we note the definite and logical progression. If we look again at the angelic announcement, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, we notice a logical and definite progression. An emphasis on God's glory which leads to praise. The necessary peace is enmity implied. The pronouncement of peace into conflict. And then the realization of that peace. Glory, praise, enmity, pronouncement, realization. Glory, praise, enmity, pronouncement, realization. There is a logical and definite progression right here in this one very good statement. When we think on the majesty and the goodness of God, what is, chief, what is the chief end of man? Man's purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When we think of the why questions, why has God created the earth the way He has created it? Why has He... Has he painted the beautiful sunset landscapes for us to behold? Why has he given to us the union of man and woman and the joy of birthing and raising children? Moms and dads, did you know you had such capacity to love something other than yourself until that baby was born? Whoa! We didn't know we could be so selfless. We didn't know we could care about anyone else more than we care for ourselves. And then when baby number two and three and four and five are born, if you happen to be so blessed by the Lord, you think, I can't possibly know, love another one of these little humans. These ones are already sucking the life out of me. I can't love anymore. I got nothing else. And then here he comes, right? doesn't even look like me. If we were lions, I would eat him. <laughs> and yet we love with a deep and inexplainable love. Why does God do this? And when we think about the glory of God written into simple procreation and the marvelous wonder of the family unit together, just that thing alone, where are we led but to Praise, glory to God in the highest. And then we realize and we remember, oh yeah, I'm a rotten sinner. We are reminded that we are at war with God if he has not reconciled us to himself. The enmity is implied. And then we're comforted by the pronouncement, peace has come. The next stage in redemption has begun. He is born, Emmanuel, God with us. And then upon our genuine, heartfelt repentance, belief, and profession of faith, that peace is realized. Glory, praise, enmity, pronouncement, realization. 
It's not merely an offer. It's not merely potential, but a statement. Peace has come to a very unsettled earth. Why is this true? Well, because the rightful king has come to claim his throne. The son of man, the God-man, the true and better Adam, under whose rule peace has come to earth. Now, if this is the doctrinal, Philippians 4, 4 through 7 is the practical. If you want, you can join me there. Or you can just listen very carefully to what, for many, are familiar words. Philippians comes after Ephesians and before Colossians, General Electric Power Company. Again, if this is the doctrinal in Luke 2.14, then Philippians brings to us the practical. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Glory, praise, enmity, pronouncement, realization. Same progression, logical and definite, finds its practical outworking right there in those verses. We're out of time, so I can't define those for you now. It's another like Bible study, but it would be good homework. Glory, praise, enmity, pronouncement, realization. Perhaps this week you might spend a few moments outlining and finding that logical and definite progression in a practical reality in verses 4 through 7. It is the application of the doctrine. What begins with trouble ends in perfect peace. In between a series of imperatives, all mirroring that doctrinal statement of the angelic announcement. So that's the second bit of application. And then thirdly, I would offer this, friends. Peace that begins in salvation is perfected in sanctification. And then, of course, we recognize that it is most fully realized in our glorification. The hothouse of this increase of personal peace, listen, the hothouse of the increase of your peace in Christ is not ease. Say that five times fast. The hothouse of your personal increase in peace in Christ is not peace, it is not ease. Pardon me. See, I can't even do it once again. Right? Rather, it's seen in the boat in Luke chapter 8. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in great danger. 
And they went and they woke him saying, <laughs> peace has come, right? <laughs> right? Here is peace on earth. The boat is capsizing and he is napping. That's peace right there, right? No, but they came to him and they woke him and they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled at this magic, right? Saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Friends, that moment, that's the hothouse, the greenhouse of the increase of personal peace in Christ. It's not smooth sailing. It's a storm that seems to threaten your very life. It's the storms that want to rattle you to your core. The increase of personal peace is seen in the boat, tossed by the wind, driven by the sea. And just when you think the storm will overtake you and you will surely drown, in comes no small power. Here into your life's troubles is spoken the very word of God. Peace, be still. My friend, if your boat is rocking and you feel hard-pressed, you wonder if you can perhaps bear nothing more. Know this. Before he'll let you drown under the weight of trial, he'll speak perfect peace. But he also might wait. He might wait until you are driven past what you believe to be the end of your strength. And when you cry out to him as you've never done before, as you've never done before, he'll answer with peace. And then perhaps he'll ask, and you might ask yourself on the tail end, where was my faith? Why did I doubt? In the rearview mirror, it seems so small what seemed to overtake me but a moment ago. Dear Christian, I would ask that you uh, do as the great little song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. Put down the four-inch rectangle box robbing you of time and energy, distracting you and subverting, giving Jesus your full gaze. Look to him. Give thanks to him. Cry out to him like never before. He will not ignore you. Your troubles may not subside right away. Your questions may not be given adequate answers, but he will not leave you nor forsake you. No, Christian, magically, he will set a table and dine with you, surrounded by enemies. I mean, is there a more vulnerable picture painted in all of the texts of Scripture than that of Psalm 23? He sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And he says, come, 
and eat with me. Sit down. Right? And we're, we're doing this, but, but, and he says, just come sit and eat. <laughs> Look at me. Be with me. Eat with me. He could take us out from the presence of our enemies, but instead he has us sit and eat with him, surrounded by enemies. Our backs turned, if you will, vulnerably to our enemies. But the troubles, but the sickness, but the fears, but the economy, and Jesus says, sit with me and eat. There's no more vulnerable state to be in than to be reclining at a table, eating a meal, while your enemies, that which trouble you, encroach and grow ever closer. And yet this is where Jesus asks for us to sit and eat. Yeah. We might say this is no time for a banquet. The enemies are encroaching. The enemies are surrounding. Dear Christian, you are dining with the king. You can add up the weight of all that which troubles you, your fears and your doubts and your worries and your unforeseen future moments, your unanswered questions. You can add them all up. You can weigh them out and put them on a scale. And then on the other side, look at your shepherd. As Paul Washer puts it, he outweighs them all. Add them up and put them on the scale. He outweighs them all. Hear the word of the Lord, Christian. Peace be still. Peace on earth. You are dining with your king. Nothing can harm you. Even death itself is a sweet reward. And another breath of life is a privileged stewardship. John O'Leary's uh, writes a hymn that begins, Comfort, comfort all my people. Speak of peace, so says our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, groaning from their sorrows load. Speak to all Jerusalem of the peace that awaits them. Tell them that their sins I cover, that their welfare, excuse me, their warfare is now over. Tell them their sins I cover, their warfare is now over. And then the song ends with this last verse. Make straight the crooked highway, make the rougher places plain. Let your hearts be true and humble, ready for his holy reign. For the glory of the Lord now over the earth is spread abroad, and all flesh shall see the token that his word is never broken. Wow. It is to that that we look and long and await. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and how by it you teach us and you comfort us, you challenge us and you point us. May you hear our praises as we sing in response to you. We thank you for your comfort And we do pray 
for peace on earth. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Let's all stand and sing one more song. friends, uh, a quick note before we depart. Uh, for those who plan to return this evening, I would like to encourage you to stop by the display in the hallway below the sanctuary. So that's, I'd like you to stop by the display in the conference room below the sanctuary. So that's here. Yeah. 
Um, our volunteers have set up a display of all the items available in our silent auction. Time will be limited tonight, so it will be a great idea to take a quick look on your way out today. Continuing. And speaking of this evening, we currently have four open seats. If you aren't registered but would like to join us, please email the church office and someone from the staff will be in touch. End quote. Okay? Well, my wife made me promise not to look at her and ask her if I got that right. So, did it? Is that everything? Is that good? <laughs> okay. Good. Now, if you'd like to pray with anyone after the service, just look for one of us with a little blue name tag. We would love to pray with you and answer any questions that you might have. In the meantime, I look forward to seeing you back tonight for a special Christmas celebration as a family of faith. And for now, let's dismiss. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. I love you. Thank you, Julia. Great.